you've got your Bible open, please, if you've got Bible there, please open them to uh, Genesis 11. And uh, this morning we're looking especially at the first nine verses. I, uh, I like geography. At high school I started out studying history, but there was a girl that I liked that did geography, and so I dropped history and following year followed her into geography. <clears throat> uh, I... I found it quite surprising that I really, really did enjoy geography. I didn't make any progress with the girl. Now, that wasn't surprising. Uh, I was history in that sense. But I really, really did enjoy geography, and I still do. And I really enjoy maps. As a teenager, for a number of years, I had a full-colour map of Middle Earth on the back of my bedroom door. These days, I have numerous atlases and reference books containing maps and I often consult them and the ones in the back of my Bible. I love maps. And so I was delighted last Sunday morning when Pastor Brendan gave us a geography lesson and also gave us a map showing us all the nations listed there in Genesis chapter 10. Genesis 10 is a map lover's dream. But it's more than just interesting geographical history. It's also a very concise explanation of how the world began to go from the post-flood frontier inhabited by only eight people to the diversely populated planet that it is today. But Genesis 10 is also a timely reminder that God knows and cares for the people and the nations of the earth by name, which is a foreshadowing of God's promise to one day gather people from every nation and kindred and tongue and people into his kingdom through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He spread the people out throughout the world so that through the gospel he might gather them in from the world into the glories of heaven. And that's what Acts 17, 26 and 27 says. And he hath made, God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell upon the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. God created and loves the diversity of the nations. He desires that heaven be a beautiful tapestry of human diversity, all praising his Son. In fact, this goal of seeing the nation spread throughout the earth, which we see coming to fruition in Genesis 10, was God's plan from the beginning. He said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, be multiply, replenish the earth. said the same thing to Noah as they came out of, his family came out of the ark. But in Genesis 11, we discover that there was a more immediate and less encouraging reason for the dispersion of Noah's descendants. The account of the Tower of Babel, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, is one of the most momentous events in the Bible and possibly one of the saddest. Momentous because of the world cultures that it spawned, but sad because of the rebellion that it depicts. Now, first heading there this morning is the word rebellion, first four verses. Why do we say rebellion? 
There's nothing inherently wrong with building a city and a tower. In fact, it might even seem like it was a good idea. After all, the Tower of Babel certainly would have been a feat of architectural beauty. It was bringing people together for a common cause. What could be so wrong about it? Now, for us to fully appreciate the rebellion which is involved here, I want us to take a brief panorama of chapters 10 and 11 and then a brief snapshot of the man Nimrod. Let's, first of all, it's a panorama of chapters 10 and 11. If you've just taken the whole sweep of 10 and 11, 10 and 11 are composed of genealogies, people and nations. <clears throat> and those genealogies are designed to link the story of Noah and the flood, which is chapters 6 through 9, with the story of Abraham and his descendants, which fills the rest of the book of Genesis. The genealogies begin with Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth, and eventually move chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 27, to a man called Terah, from whom Abraham is born. <clears throat> now, in this genealogy, there are two parentheses, and both of them deal with the founding of the First World Empire under Nimrod. The first parentheses is back in chapter 10, verses 8 to 12. And the second parentheses was our reading this morning, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. The two parentheses go together. The first parentheses tells us of Nimrod's exploits. The second parenthesis doesn't mention Nimrod by name, but speaks rather of an attempt to build the city of Babylon, a central feature of which was to be this great tower. And on the surface, these two accounts seem to be two separate incidents, but that's not the case. The second parenthesis does indeed tell of the founding of Babylon, but we learn from the first parentheses that Babylon was the initial city that, Nineveh, that uh, what's his name Nimrod built in his city-building enterprises. Furthermore, as we study these chapters, we see that the founding of Babylon and the building of the Tower of Babel in chapter eleven is just an elaboration of the first. Parenthesis, the first parenthetical narrative. In the first, we have an emphasis on Nimrod, what he was like, what he did, what his goals were. And in the second, we have a treatment of the same theme, but from the perspective of the people who worked with him. In each case, there's this desire to build a civilization without God. Now let's just take a brief snapshot of this man Nimrod. Let's go back <clears throat> and read the first parentheses back in chapter 10, beginning at verse 6. It says, And the sons of Ham were these, Hush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan, four, four sons of Ham. The oldest one is Cush. Verse 7, And the sons of Cush 
Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Raama and Sabteca, five sons of Cush. And the sons of Raama, Seba and Dedan. Then it comes back to Cush. And Cush begat Nimrod, some, some son number six. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore is it said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And Eric and Akkad and Canaan, Cana, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Ashur and builded Nineveh and the city of Rehoboth and Kala. Now, although Cush and all his other sons moved south and west into Arabia and Africa, his son Nimrod settled in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. That is the land of Shinar, mentioned verse 10. Nimrod was apparently the youngest son of Cush and perhaps felt something of a moral kinship with his uncle Canaan, who had been the youngest son of Ham and who inherited the curse that Noah pronounced. Cush, as Ham's oldest son, had apparently resented the curse on his brother Canaan more and more and more as the years passed by. And by the time that his son Nimrod was born, Cush's resentment had become so strong that he gave his son Nimrod a name which means, let us rebel. The inference is that Cain trained Nimrod from childhood to be a leader in a planned and organized rebellion against God's purposes for mankind. Remember, under the curse which Noah pronounced, God destined the family of Canaan, who were Hamites, to perpetual servitude to the descendants of Shem and, and Japheth. But Cush says, no way, no way, we will rule instead. And so Cush began to train Nimrod to struggle for the ascendancy amongst men. Thus Nimrod began to be, verse 8, a mighty one in the earth. And soon he had all the Hamites under his influence and leadership. Verse 10 tells us that they finally settled in the fertile land of Shinar. That's the area between the Tigris and the Euphrates River that became Babylon. And he began there to build a great complex of cities. And what's it say? The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Verse 9 says Nimrod became a mighty hunter before the Lord, or perhaps more literally a mighty tyrant in the face of Jehovah. He was a hunter in the sense that he was implacable in searching out and persuading men to follow and obey his will. Henry Morris, the commentator, quotes the Jerusalem Targum, which says this, and I quote, Nimrod was, a power, was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord, for he was a hunter of the sons of men. And he said to them, Depart from the judgment of the Lord, adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. Therefore it is said, as Nimrod the strong one, strong in hunting 
and in wickedness before the Lord. So Nimrod was a man of great ability and energy and was evidently a leader of those who built Babel, which then formed into the central city over the region of which he became king. Now from Babel, verse 11 says, out of that land went forth Assur. Now Assur here is not a person, it's a place, it's another name for Assyria. And so a better rendering overall would be, out of that land Nimrod went forth into Assyria, where, what's it say, he builded Nineveh. Nineveh was situated on the upper Tigris River as Babylon was situated on the Euphrates. Nineveh was roughly 200 miles north of Babylon. Nineveh later became the centre of the Assyrian Empire as Babylon became the centre of the Babylonian Empire. And Nimrod was the founder and first emperor of both. Both of them were empires of idolatry and wickedness. Now, with that background in mind, we go back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, when God instructed mankind through Noah to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And again, chapter 9, verse 7, he told them, Be ye fruitful, multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. God's instructions were clear. The people were not to hunker down in one spot. They were to spread out over all the earth. But listen to chapter 11, verse 1. The whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Verse 2, and it came to pass... As they journeyed from the east, they found the plain of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they built a tower there. And so what's so wrong with building this city and this tower of Babel? Well, first thing, they should never have been a Babel. There should never have been this gathering together of the earth populations into this one place first and foremost. Now, the settlement in the land of Shinar could be could be construed as being a partial fulfilment of the command scattered throughout all the earth. They, they got as far as China. And yet as we read on, we find that the goal of that particular settlement was not fulfill, fulfilment of the commands of God at all. Rather, they settled there in defiance of God's command. And from the very beginning, Babel's goal was to resist any further scattering of people over the earth and instead... Their goal was to create a city where the achievements of united and integrated people would be centralised. God had told them to spread out, but the people under Nimrod's leadership said, no, we're going to stay here. We're going to stay together. Life is easier together. We're going to settle and build a city and a tower. Rather go out to the great unknown, live as pilgrims and pioneers. We're going to stay here. In their minds, it seems so much wiser to congregate together in one large metropolis than to scatter out over the face of the earth. God's instructions were clear, and yet they ignored that in favour of their own wisdom. In other words, the people did what seemed convenient instead of what was commanded. The people did what was convenient instead of what was commanded. You know, we read a passage like this and we think, you know, the experience of them, the experience of us are so far apart, you know. What's this got to do with us at all? But when we put in those terms, we look at what these ancients did way back then and the disaster that was, and it seems very much like what 
people and Christians often do today. We do what is to us convenient more so than what is commanded. Brethren, we need to admit that we are not above the ancient sin of Babel, thinking ourselves wiser than God. Surely God isn't saying what it looks like he's saying, we think to ourselves. Surely God will understand if I fudge on this commandment. Surely given the modern situation, we can't be expected to take all those commandments so seriously. Surely the command to love not the world has no bearing on my entertainment choices. Surely the command to forsake idols has got absolutely nothing to do with my hobbies and my interests. Surely the command to take up the cross and follow Christ won't require me to be inconvenienced. This was the sin of Babel and of many of us modern Christians too. Many of us think about God's commands in simple terms of what's convenient, on that list of commands, what's convenient for us and what's not. When in actual fact, the real issue, the real issue that we have to, do, have to identify is that of rebellion. We ignore the clear instructions of God's word in favour of our own wisdom. You know, often what we find ourselves doing is nothing less than just going, on with, going along with the rest of the crowd. We're just doing what our Christians next to us are doing. We're just part of the same group. But if we were to look up, we would see ourselves assembled under Nimrod's banner. And that banner says, let us rebel. Brethren, let us not. Rather, let us admit, let us confess, let us repent of these thinly veiled expressions of rebellion. We come to our second heading, which is the word renown. The main reason why the descendants of Noah thought themselves wiser than God was because they already deemed themselves to be more important than God. Notice verse 4 again. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach under heaven and let us make us a name. Their chief goal had shifted from glorifying God and enjoying him forever to promoting their own renown. The tower that they built at Babel was known as a ziggurat. And the archaeologists have excavated several of, several of these large structures which were built primarily for religious purposes. A ziggurat was a lot like a pyramid except that had successive levels that were recessed so they were all like steps so you could walk to the top step after step and at the top was a special platform raised platform a shrine usually dedicated to a god or goddess usually featuring symbols of the, the zodiac and in building the structure the people weren't trying to climb up to heaven to dethrone god rather they hoped that a god or goddess that they were worshipping, would come down from heaven and meet them. The structure in the city they called Babel, which means the, the gate of the gods. 
But the word Babel actually comes from the Hebrew, Hebrew verb Babel, B-A-B-E-L, which actually means confusion. This infamous project was an arrogant declaration of war against the Lord, not unlike the revolt described in Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break his bands asunder and cast their cords from us. Now, to begin with, the people were resisting God's edict to scatter and repopulate the earth. They decided to stay in one place, build a city, a great ziggurat, stay together, but even more than that, they wanted to make a name for themselves so that others would admire them and come to join them. And the people had several things in their favour. They were truly united nations. They were one people. Chapter 11, verse 6, speaking one language, using one vocabulary, one dictionary. They were motivated by one spirit of pride, one compelling desire to make a name for themselves. And so the project gets underway. The builders were not at all concerned with God's plans. In fact, they deliberately acknowledged that their purpose was contrary to God's plan. Let's do this, lest, verse 4 says, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. Let's make us a name. Let's make us a name. Brethren, this is not far from every one of us. Isn't that the mantra of our age? Self-promotion is the air that we breathe in the Western world. Very often it's the reason why we wear what we wear, or we drive what we drive. It's the reason why pastors long for bigger churches. It's why the Pharisees, like some of us, Love to do religious deeds, to be noticed by others. And so we need to be constantly asking ourselves, am I purchasing this item, seeking this promotion, performing this service, attending this event, so that I might feel better about myself, attract more attention to myself, live more comfortably for myself or am I doing it for the glory of God whose name are we most interested in advancing is it the fame of his name or our own thirdly in verses 5 to 7 we see restraint in verses 5 to 7, God responded to the people's building project. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one and they have all one language and this they begin to do and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down. And there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, God's response here in some ways might sound confusing to us. It almost sounds as if he's saying in verse 6 that should he leave man to himself, man would be able to do all that he imagined. 
heavens. And he really would build a tower that reaches all the way to heaven. There's no limit to what man can and will do. But I don't believe that's what's meant here. The phrase, nothing will be restrained from them, which they've imagined to do, refers not to the heights of their accomplishments that mankind might achieve, but rather to the depths of sin to which mankind will fall. In other words, God's saying, if I let their sin go unchecked, there's no telling how much worse it will get. No rebellion will be too great for them then. Nothing will be sacred for their crooked hearts. And therefore God applied a restraint. Now God in heaven is never perplexed or paralysed by what people do on earth. Babel's conceded, you know, let's go up and do this, was answered by heavens, very, very calm, verse 7, let us go down. When the people of the earth rebel against him, as recorded in Psalm 2, verse 1 to 3, verse 4 goes on to say that he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. God applies restraint. Have you realised that about the world? God had not replied a restraint. If God had not surrounded us by civil authorities, if God had not put into society certain religious influences or, or, and the fear of punishments, if God had not provided these restraints, we could be in as much darkness as the Orca Indians of Ecuador, or worse. Have you realised that about yourself? The reason that you and I have not gone off the deep end into sin is not because we are morally superior to the terrorists of the world, but because rather because of God's restraining grace. And we ought to remember this next time we read about crime and wickedness in the newspapers or next time we pass a drunken or drug-affected person on the street. We should remember Babel and remind ourselves that if God did not restrain the natural bent of our hearts, then there's no sin which would be impossible for us. You know, we often bemoan the fact that we can't do the things that we want to do. Brethren, thank God for it. It's of the Lord's mercies. We have no real idea of what we are sinfully capable of. As a paraphrase of a verse in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things desperately wicked. We have no real idea of how sinful we are capable. F fourthly, finally, verses 8 and 9, we see a reversal. How did God restrain the evil of Noah's descendants? Well, verse 7 tells us that he scrambled their language. And in this way, he foiled their plans. The confounding of their languages meant that they had to scatter over the whole face of the earth. 
to ensure that 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 that's, that something like this Babel would never happen again. It was a very ironic reversal of fortunes. They had wanted to make a name for themselves, and yet they couldn't even pronounce one another's names. They had wanted to ensure that they wouldn't be scattered over the face of the whole earth, and now that's exactly what they find happening. They had to had to find someone that they could communicate with. They couldn't all exist together and not communicate. They had to find people they could understand. When they found people that they could understand, they, 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 they grouped together and moved away from others, set up new communities. And what a reminder this is that God opposes the proud and will often make the punishment of our arrogance the direct reversal of our prideful intention. If we've ever adopted plans without first consulting the Lord and his word, we should not be surprised if the Lord turns those plans on their head. This is the cause, no doubt, why many plans fail. Why has this business deal flopped? Why has this relationship turned sour? Why did this purchase end up such a waste? Well, the answer won't always be as a chastisement upon sin, but Babel reminds us that that's a possibility. God has a way of showing us when we have left him out of the equation, does he not? And even that is for our good, that he would chasten us in that way because it gives us an opportunity to repent and it teaches us to commit our works to the Lord and our thoughts will be established says in Proverbs 16.3. Now, without going too much into the message for next week, Genesis 11 concludes by zeroing in on the genealogy of just one of the sons of Noah, that is Shem, from verse 10 through to verse 32. It was through the line of Shem that Abraham, the father of the Jewish race, was born. And so here we have the beginning of God setting apart the Jewish people, the Hebrews, as his chosen people. Here we have a wonderful reminder that amidst all the mess of Babel, God remembers in mercy to set aside a people whom he, through whom he would bring a saviour into the world, providing undeserved salvation for all sinners who will believe. We, beloved, are the recipients of that undeserved salvation through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This genealogy here is a reminder of him too. If you look at verses 10 to 32 closely, comparing those verses there with Luke chapter 3, you'll find that all of these names are repeated by Luke as being ancestors of the Messiah. Isn't that wonderful to know? That all the way back, all the way back in Genesis 11, on the heels of the greatest rebellion in human history, God was planning to send his son. God truly loves sinners and longs to save us. Have you been willing to accept that love? Admitting that it's undeserved and never can be earned. Have you laid down your rebellion, your desire to make a name for yourself and admitted your insufficiency and that the salvation is found in Christ alone. Or are you like the people of the ancient people of Babel, 
trying to build your own little stairway to heaven. Psychotherapist Naomi Rosenblatt says, quote, every generation builds its own towers. And on that point, she's right. Where there's actual skyscrapers, like the Burj Caliph in Dubai, or the Eiffel Tower in Paris, or the Trump Tower in New York, or Barangaroo in Sydney, or the macro-organisations that circle the globe. The idea is the same. We'll make a name for ourselves. Now, as God's people, we can't escape being in the world because being in the world is where we have our ministry. But we must avoid, at all costs, being of the world. We're not here to build arrogant towers of men. We're here to help build the church of Jesus Christ. And what humanity can't achieve by means of its proud towers, Jesus Christ has achieved by dying on a humiliating cross. And all who trust in Jesus Christ are one in him and will share together in the glory of heaven, regardless of race or nation, language or tribe. And while the world system is outwardly producing uniformity, it's inwardly tearing things apart. But the Holy Spirit is using the church as an agent of reconciliation to bring things together in Jesus Christ. In one sense, Pentecost was a reversal of Babel. And the day is coming when people from every tribe and nation will worship Jesus Christ. Give praise to him throughout all eternity. The judgment of Babel will be done away. Now, in one sense, brethren, it would be very appropriate for us to conclude this morning with a hymn about the blessing and the anticipated joy that awaits us in heaven. But I somehow feel it would be more appropriate that we conclude with a hymn which is more like a prayer, a prayer that God would, in fact, search our hearts to see if there be any wicked way in us. There are many ways in in which we are more like these rebellious people than I think we care to admit. And so our concluding hymn this morning is a prayer that we sing together. The hymn is number 57. It's that uh, hymn that starts this way. Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Saviour, and know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. We'll stand and sing prayerfully after the introduction. <clears throat>